about the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, and there's so much good stuff to talk about that we're going to take a couple of weeks uh, to talk through uh, the history and the King James Bible itself. Um, as we get started this morning, I'm going to read a quote from the preface to the King James Version of the Bible, uh, which is an excellent uh, kind of essay, so to speak, to read. You can find it for free online. I'd recommend that you look it up and read it. Uh, it is very good. It's not too long. But here's, uh, here's something that they say in that preface. They say, but now what piety or godliness without truth? What truth, what saving truth, without the word of God? What word of God, whereof we may be sure, without the scripture? The scriptures we are commanded to search. They are commended that searched and studied them. They are reproved that were unskillful in them or slow to believe them. They can make us wise unto salvation. If we be ignorant, they will instruct us. If out of the way, they will bring us home. If out of order, they will reform us. If in heaviness, comfort us. If dull, quicken us. If cold, inflame us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that makes us alive to you. We thank you that your spirit uses the word to tell us about Christ, to tell us the truth about our sins, to tell us that we can be saved by believing in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we continue to reflect on your word, that you would thrill us with all that you've done to bring it to us in our language. We thank you for uh, what we're going to consider this morning in the history of the King James Bible and how you've uh, brought that about and then used that particular version of the Bible. Even in so many of our lives, we thank you for that. We pray that you fill our hearts with gratitude to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the 5th of November should ever be forgot. Does anybody know what that's talking about? Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay. Some of you, maybe two of you. Um, so that, that is a little English jingle about the gunpowder treason uh, that happened on November 5th, 1605. All right, so in 1605, uh, there was this plot um, so to blow up Parliament uh, with gunpowder, with like 36 kegs of gunpowder underneath Parliament. Uh, Westminster Palace, you probably know, it's like where Big Ben is, the big clock tower. Anyway, they were going to blow that up. The people who wanted to blow it up were Roman Catholics, and they wanted to blow it up because the, the Protestants were oppressing them. Uh, so you'll remember in the history of England in the 1500s, flipped back and forth between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And Queen Elizabeth I, who was queen for about 40 years at the end of the 1500s, she was a Protestant. She passed laws that made it very hard to be Roman Catholic. Uh, all the clergy had to convert to Anglicanism, and if you didn't, uh, you were thrown in jail, you had to pay fines, and so it was not easy to be Roman Catholic around that time, 
then in 1603, Queen Elizabeth died, and a new king uh, came to England, came down from Scotland. Queen Elizabeth did not have an heir, and that king who came down from Scotland was James. It was King James. He was King James VI of Scotland. He was King James I of England. And uh, he did not repeal those laws. And so it continued. He was a Protestant. It continued to be hard to be Roman Catholic. And so they tried, the Roman Catholics hatched a plot to blow up Parliament. And they failed. Uh, they were caught before they could blow it up. A guy named Guy Fox uh, was caught guarding 36 kegs of gunpowder under Parliament. And so still in England, they celebrate. It's called Guy Fox Night which was Friday, right? So if today's November 7th, that was November 5th. If that had succeeded, it is very likely that you would not have a King James Bible because that was in 1605, and the King James Bible was being worked on at that time. It was not completed. Well, anyway, this is just a reminder for us as we, as we start this morning of kind of the political tensions uh, that existed around the time that the King James Bible was being produced. So when Queen Elizabeth died, as I mentioned, she didn't have an heir. Her closest relative was the King of Scotland. So he was coming down from Scotland. And as he was coming to London to take the throne, uh, the there were hopes, high hopes, by a group of pastors called the Puritans. Uh, that was not a name that they chose for themselves. That was a derogatory name uh, that their opponents labeled them as Puritans. Uh, they were called Puritans because they wanted to further reform the Church of England, right? So you remember uh, that the Church of England in the 1500s split from Rome, but even though they split from Roman authority, they did not split at that time from Roman theology or practice. And so the Puritans wanted to continue to reform the Church of England to make the Church of England more pure and less like Rome. Well, when King James I was coming down from Scotland, they thought that maybe James would listen to their ideas to further reform the church. Scotland was not Anglican. Scotland was Presbyterian. And so a lot of them were, had Presbyterian theology and wanted to practice things more in a Presbyterian way. So they thought maybe James will listen to us. So before James could even get to London, they signed a petition uh, called the Millenary Petition. And it's so named Millenary, like Millennium, uh, for a thousand. It is, it is thought that about a thousand clergy signed this petition. That would have been about a tenth of the clergy in England at the time. Uh, they sent this petition to James while he was traveling down asking for these reforms. And I just kind of chuckle at that, right? Because James, he hasn't even taken his throne yet. And these Puritan clergy are just so eager. They, like, sign the petition. It's like if you get up in the morning, like this morning for me, you, like, get up in the morning, and before you get your cup of coffee, like, all the kids want something, right? They're like, Dad, Dad, I need this, I need that. It's like James didn't even, like, get his cup of coffee yet, and they're— they're asking, they're petitioning him to make reforms in the church, these really serious decisions. Well, James, uh, he listens to their petition. He accepts it, and he says, okay, I will listen to your requests. Um, and so he calls together a conference. 
known as the Hampton Court, which convened in January 14th through 16th of 1604. So James hadn't even been king for a year yet. And he accepts this petition. He knows about the tensions in England in the Anglican Church. And so they convene this court. And, and he invites to the court, of course, some of the Puritans who had made these requests. But he also invites a whole bunch of bishops, Anglican bishops, who don't want these reforms to take place. And by all accounts, the deck was stacked in favor of the bishops, the established authorities, in terms of their authority, right? Because they were, the, of course, the bishops. They were the ones who were leading, who were in charge, who had authority in the church. And they outranked the dissenting Puritans. And they were also, uh, the bishops were also favored just in terms of the format. There were more bishops invited than dissenting pastors and clergy. And by all records of this, the bishops were winning the arguments, right? So they're convened. I mean, James is there. James is kind of presiding over this, this conference where they're debating different things, and the bishops seem to be winning the arguments. And James was not granting the Puritans' requests. And at one point in the dialogue, one of the Puritan representatives named John Reynolds, he objected to the use of the Book of Common Prayer, for, and they would have issues with that. That was the official book that they would use to, to lead their, their worship services. And John Reynolds made kind of an offhand comment objecting to the Book of Common Prayer because it used the Bishop's Bible. Right? So you remember from last week, there at this point, there's really two main Bibles being used in the churches. They're all using the Bishop's Bible. That's what's being read and preached from in the pulpit. But all the, the people in the pews are using the Geneva Bible. And the Puritans favored the Geneva Bible. Um, and so it's really fascinating that John Reynolds makes this comment because it's kind of an offhand remark. Bible translations are not in their petition. Remember I mentioned that these Puritans had, a thousand of them had submitted a petition asking for changes and reform in the church, and that did not mention anything about Bible translations. So this is kind of a, a new thing that's getting brought up by John Reynolds. In other words, it doesn't seem that Bible translations were a main concern of the Puritans. But it, it was something on their mind, so John Reynolds kind of mentions it offhand. And um, here's what he said. He said, May your majesty be pleased to direct that the Bible be now translated, such versions as are extant, not answering to the original. So he's saying the versions that exist, that's what extant means, he says the versions that exist Sometimes they don't agree with the Greek and the Hebrew. And so he's saying, can, can we have a new translation? Well, needless to say, the bishops didn't appreciate that because this is kind of a dig at the bishop's Bible, again, that's being used in the Book of Common Prayer. And so Bishop Bancroft, who's one of the leading bishops, he replied, if every man's humor should be followed, there would be no end of translating. And... Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of something to that, isn't there? Like, you could, you could have so many different translations, and we have a lot of translations, don't we? But if James had listened to that bishop, you would not have the King James Bible. But, as you can guess, because you have a King James Bible, James did seize on that comment that the Puritans were requesting, and James determined that a committee should be put together to make 
a new Bible. The, uh, I mentioned before the preface to the King James Bible. In the preface to the King James Bible, they summarize this series of events that I've just described to you. And this is being written by a bishop, by the way, not a Puritan. So you can kind of, I'm going to read this section to you, and you'll kind of hear these digs at the Puritans who requested a new translation. So they say, <clears throat> quote, upon the importunate, importunate means obnoxious, upon the importunate petitions of the Puritans, at his majesty's coming to this crown, the conference at Hampton Court, having been appointed for hearing their complaints, when by force of reason they were put from all other grounds, so in other words, they're making all these requests and they're losing their arguments, they had recourse at the last to this shift that they could not with good conscience subscribe to the communion book, the Book of Common Prayer, since it maintained the Bible as it was there translated, which was, as they said, a most corrupted translation. And although this was judged to be but a very poor and empty shift, in other words, this is not like a reasonable request that they're making, they, they think. And although this was judged to be a very poor and empty shift, yet even hereupon did his majesty begin to bethink himself of the good that might ensue by a new translation. And presently after gave order for this translation, which is now presented unto thee, thus much to satisfy our scrupulous brethren. So um, that's kind of the history of, of how this came about. I think it's interesting to think about James for a second. Um, James wasn't directly involved in the translating, but he probably had several motivations in granting this request, and it's interesting to think about why he would agree to that. Again, because it's not a part of the original petition, um, and uh, because he denied so many of the requests that the Puritans were making. Well, let's think about some of the, the motivations that he may have had. A new Bible appeared for him to be an opportunity to give a concession to the Puritans. Again, Elizabeth, his, the, you know, the queen before him, was a fairly savvy politician that did much to kind of bring these dissenting factions together. And so, you know, he wasn't going to grant them so many of their requests. So it's possible he thought, okay, like maybe I can give them this one. But I think there's much more to it than that. This also provided a way to bring together the bishops and the dissenting Puritans because he would put both of them on the translation commission. Uh, Price and Ryrie, in this book, uh, they point out another possible motivation. They say an unspoken problem was the awkwardness of having one Bible in the pulpits and another in the houses of the realm. The bishop's Bible was used in services, whereas the Geneva Bible was dominating the market and therefore household reading. So, you know, a new Bible provided a way to bring the country together because, again, the authorized version being used from the services was the Bishop's Bible, but all the people were using the Geneva Bible. So this was maybe a, an opportunity to bring people together. James also had a thing or two against the Geneva Bible, right? So just the fact that so many... Uh, people in England were using the Geneva Bible was a cause of concern for James. And so you know, he probably wanted to provide a different option for the people, something else that they could use. You remember from last week, we talked about the Geneva Bible. It was full of Protestant notes um, and not a few that seemed to limit or threaten the power of the monarchy, right? So as we mentioned last week, uh, there was that note in Exodus 119 
that endorsed the civil disobedience of the midwives when Pharaoh gave them that law uh, to disobey, uh, or when Pharaoh gave the law to, to kill all the male children and the midwives disobeyed and the Geneva Bible said they were right to do that. Similarly, there was a note in the Geneva Bible on Romans 13.5. You know, Romans 13 talks about uh, government. And the, the note in the Geneva Bible taught that Christians should obey magistrates only as far as conscience allowed, and it is better to obey God than man. And James specifically objected to a note in 2 Chronicles 15.16, which argued that King Asa should have had his wicked mother executed for her lawlessness. Uh, and Price and Ryrie point out in this book that it probably didn't help that James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had been executed. You know, so there, there's lots of reasons that James would have not appreciated the Geneva Bible. And so James probably hoped that a new translation might diminish the popularity of some of those troublesome notes. And we'll see how that played into the formulation of the King James Bible uh, in just a moment. When James was king of Scotland, he had actually obtained approval to revise the Geneva. Um, but he was never, never able to bring that com to completion because Queen Elizabeth died, and he had to go down to England. So he never got to follow through on that uh, revision of the Geneva Bible up in Scotland. So maybe he thought that this was a way to bring some of those dreams to fruition. Finally, James himself was a competent scholar. This kind of distinguished him from... Uh, some other monarchs in England, James was an excellent scholar with biblical languages. Uh, he was doing translation work when he was like eight years old. Like he was a wizard with the languages. And so he was very educated and informed on Bible translations. James himself, after the King James Bible was published, James himself would go on to make his own translation of several of the Psalms uh, that were published. Uh, so he was, he was very competent and interested in Bible translation and in the biblical languages. So this is kind of the vortex of political aspirations, religious history, kind of an offhand comment by Puritan John Reynolds, and then the, uh, the support by King James uh, that all went into launching this new work on producing the King James Bible. So I'll pause here for any comments or questions, and then we'll talk about how they actually did the work of doing the translating. does dramatize a lot of this. It's kind of a documentary drama, docudrama? I don't know what they call this thing. Um, yeah, but, you know, the, the 400th anniversary was in 2011. So there was a lot of attention given appropriately to the, the history of the King James around that time. There's lots of good resources that you could access to access this history usefully. still over Scotland, so he was over it all. Yeah, Scotland, England, Ireland, yeah, he was over it all. James, was James a Christian? Yeah, um, I don't know, know a lot about his personal piety, you know, I've, in my reading, um, 
you know, I read that he was kind of a snarky church attender. He would fall asleep in the services um, kind of thing. Um, but, you know, that happens. Um, uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, I don't know a lot about his personal piety. Again, he, he grew up, um, you know, being taught uh, Christianity, being taught the gospel, being taught the scriptures. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot about his personal piety, um, yeah, or his confession or profession, but I don't know of a reason to say he's not. Uh, he certainly would have identified himself as such, yeah, and would have tried to live that out. Yeah. Yes, Dave. Where did you say that was? Yeah, so, uh, which, if, if history serves me right, I think that a lot of the, a lot of settlers to America came during his reign, right? So in the 1620s, even after his translation. We'll talk more about this later. But when the King James Bible was, like, produced, it didn't make everybody happy, right? So a lot of Puritans left during King James's reign and came to America. Uh, and then you have Catholics on the other side. I mean, they're not happy. There are plenty of bishops that weren't happy. Um, so there, again, and, and it's it's a it's a very different world in in a lot of significant ways from the one that, in which we live, um, in how the politics and the religion are all wrapped up together. Having a king, kind of overseeing. We'll see in a second. He helped set the rules for the translation, um, and yeah, had plenty of critics. know whose idea it was. It wasn't that uncommon, uh, you know, and so some people call the Bishop's Bible the Queen Elizabeth Bible, because it was it was approved under her reign. Um, so I don't know if it was maybe his printer, um, certainly in the preface, there's a dedication to the king. Uh, that's not uncommon. That's quite common. Um, yeah, so I don't know who came up with that idea necessarily, but it was certainly dedicated to him. Let's, uh, let's talk about how they did their work, how the translators uh, produced the Bible. So, uh, a team, this is very shortly after that Hampton Court. Do you remember the Hampton Court was in January? By July of 1604, about 54 men were identified to this project and were assigned to this project. And you remember in the past, right, especially in the case of Wycliffe or Tyndale, you would have one guy or maybe a handful of guys working on a translation, but this is a large team uh, that's being assembled for this. And we, we know most of their names. I'm not going to read them, but if you Google it, uh, or in this book, you know, they list most of the names of these translators, so we know who they are. If you want to know, you can find out. Uh, these men were divided into six teams. You can imagine how challenging it would be to have 54 people trying to translate one verse, so they didn't do it like that. They divided all these people up. 
into six teams, and they were all si assigned chunks of scripture to work on. Um, the group was deliberately composed of men with diverse doctrinal positions, right? So these guys, these translators, they were all Protestants, but they represented the spectrum of English Protestantism, right? So on the one hand, you would have the bishops. On the other hand, you would have the Puritans. You would have some Calvinists. You would have some Arminians. Um, and the, the diversity countered, uh, you know, part of the design there is to counter the complaints that people had about partisanship, either in the Bishop's Bible or in the Geneva Bible. You know, so they're bringing all these guys together to work on a new translation. And all of these translators were excellent scholars of biblical languages. So many of them were, were professors at Oxford, at Cambridge, uh, and they would have been, you know, world-class uh, scholars in their time. The chief editor uh, was the aforementioned Bishop Richard Bancroft, who made that snarky remark about if, if everybody, if, if we uh, tolerated everybody's humors, there would be no end of translating. Well, that guy got put in charge of the translation. How did they do their work? Uh, so they, they established 15 principles that they would follow. And although James wasn't directly involved in the translating work, James was very involved in setting the rules. Um, and I don't know if he actually wrote them, but he had direct supervision over the, the policies that this translation committee would follow. So there were rules that governed the biblical texts that they used. Uh, rule number one said, the ordinary Bible read in the church commonly called the Bishop's Bible, is to be followed, and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. So you can see in that very first principle that they didn't, they didn't think of themselves as creating a whole new translation. It's not inappropriate for us to call uh, different translations translations, because that's the work that's involved, but they saw themselves more properly as revising the Bishop's Bible based on the most recent scholarship that they had available to them. In the preface, they described their work as, quote, building upon their foundation that went before us and being holpen, I think that means helped, by their labors. Do endeavor to make that better which they left so good. So they saw themselves as just improving upon the work that had already been done in the prior translation. By their own principle and self-understanding, they, they understood that they were doing a work of revision. And in a very real sense, we'll talk about this more as we go through the class, but in a very real sense, ever since Tyndale, that's what English speakers have been doing, basically. <laughs> We've been looking back at translations that have come before, comparing it to the Greek and Hebrew, and revising and updating that language. Um, and they understood that they were doing that. Rule number 14 added, these translations are to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible, Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, the Great Bible, Geneva. So we see here in rule number 14 that they're happily using all the English translations that they have available to them. They're starting with the Bishop's Bible, but when these other translations agree better with the Hebrew and the Greek, they'll use those works also. Uh, Price and Ryrie in their book, they also, uh, they also say, Quote, that they carefully studied all the vernacular translations that were made since the Antwerp polyglot appeared 
Antwerp Polyglot was just a scholarly Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But the point there is that the King James translators were looking at the vernacular translations of Spanish, of French, Italian. Uh, they, they collected all of those recent translations that have been done in the last 20 or 30 years when they were doing their work, and they, they looked at those to see how those translators had done, uh, had done their work. You can see in both of those rules, Rule 1 and 14, that the standard is, quote, the truth of the original or the text. And w when they talk like that, they're talking about the Hebrew and the Greek text. And at that time, there was not a standard Hebrew text like we have today, um, but there were high-quality Hebrew texts, and the biblical texts in Hebrew were fairly stable. In other words, there weren't significant variations in the Hebrew text. Um, and that's in large measure, we can thank uh, the Jewish scribes who preserved that text so carefully and so well for hundreds and hundreds of years. We talked a bit about how reliable that was when we looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls several weeks ago. The Greek text that they use, I want to take a bit of, to talk about this. I just kind of mentioned this in passing last week. The Greek text that the King James translators had was an edition that was produced by Theodore Beza. So Theodore Beza worked in Geneva. He was a pastor and a scholar in Geneva. He was the successor to John Calvin there. So they were using a Greek text that Theodore Beza had revised. Theodore Beza had revised that Greek text based on the one that was made by a guy named Stephanus, who revised the Greek New Testament that Erasmus made. We spent a lot of time talking about Erasmus several weeks ago. So from 1516 to 1604, the Greek New Testament was being updated and revised based on the Greek text being identified and analyzed and incorporated into the published editions. And when those Greek texts disagreed with each other, Stephanus, Beza, they would make notes in the margin. They would say, okay, we've got this Greek text that uses this word and this Greek text that uses another word, and they would make notes about that in the margin. And then they would put in the text the word that they thought was originally written by Peter or Matthew or James. So, but these Greek texts, they were, they were limited to what was readily available to them at the time, right? So even Erasmus in the 1516, he knew there were other Greek texts out there, but that he couldn't get to them. Uh, he couldn't, remember, he had to travel around. They weren't scanned or photocopied somewhere for him to go look at. You have to travel around. And so they were limited to what they had available to them. And since their time, you know, we've discovered over 5,000 other Greek texts um, that the King James translators did not have access to. And modern translations give consideration to those Greek texts that we now know about. We'll, we'll talk more about that in later weeks. But one last historical note that's relevant to point out is that sometimes you'll hear it said that the King James translators used the received text, or the Latin phrase there is the Textus Receptus. Sometimes that's abbreviated to TR, as, uh, as the Greek basis for the New Testament. But that's not, that's not exactly the case. The Greek text that the King James translators used was in 1604 to 1609. And that edition, again, was used by Theodore Beza, but that was not the Textus Receptus. The Greek New Testament was revised again later in the 1630s. And in that edition, the publisher said, the reader has the text now received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. And it's from that phrase in the 1630s, from a different edition of the Greek New Testament, that we get that phrase, received text, or textus receptus. So they're very similar. I don't want to give the impression that they're, that they're wildly different. They're not wildly different, but they're, 
there's different editions of the Greek text. So to summarize all that, the King James translators, they were using the Bishop's Bible as their base text, and they were checking it against the best Hebrew and Greek text that they had available to them. And they were referencing several other English translations and using that wording when it agreed better with the Hebrew and the Greek. And then they used other non-English vernacular translations like the French, the Latin, the Italian. Uh, there are some other rules. I'll pause here for a second because I've been covering a lot of different material. If there's any questions or comments so far, we'll talk more about their rules and things that they were doing. Okay, so those were a couple of the rules about the text that they were using. There were also rules that reflected the political tensions of the time. So rule number three said the old ecclesiastical words are to be kept. For example, the word church is not to be translated congregation. Um, they also did similar things with words like baptism. So the word for church means assembly or congregation, and it is translated that way when it's referring to non-religious gatherings in the New Testament. So I think it's Acts 18, uh, where there's, a, there's an assembly, and it's the word ecclesia. It's the Greek word. Uh, that's translated as assembly, but the bishops in King James, they did not want ecclesia translated as assembly because it might lead to a different understanding of that New Testament community. So this kind of rule to keep the ecclesiastical language like church and not assembly or congregation was meant to protect Anglican polity that had a hierarchy of bishops with the king and the queen at the top. Price and Ryrie point out that King James' fear was no bishops, no monarchy. The Presbyterian system of church governance, which included control of churches by members, was too democratic. Uh, and so they made a rule not to use the ecclesiastical language and not to have a more straightforward translation with some of those words. Rule number six said this, no marginal notes at all to be affixed, but only for explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. So you know enough by now to know what that rule is about. That rule is to protect against uh, the kinds of comments that showed up in the Geneva Bible. They didn't want that in their new translation. At the same time, this rule also shows us that they understood there are complexities in translating the Bible, sometimes because the Hebrew or the Greek texts have a, a variation, and so in those cases they would make a marginal note. Um, and sometimes because translating a Hebrew or Greek phrase into English is hard to do. Uh, and so without some circumlocution, without some explanation, it's, it's hard to just simply translate some things. And so they would make marginal notes in those cases as well. Many of the other rules address how the committees worked. Remember I said there were 54 guys, six teams. They would do some translating, then they would send it off to the other teams, and then a couple of leaders from each group would get together, they would confer, and then they would produce the final translation of the King James. So that's how they worked. Who did the printing? Uh, the printing was first done in 1611 by the king's official printer. I mentioned this when Bob asked his question. Uh, the king's official printer did the printing. His name was Robert Barker. He paid 3,500 pounds, which is a lot of money back then, 3,500 pounds for exclusive rights to print the King James. He made some 20,000 copies of it. There were three editions produced in 1611. Those editions weren't exactly the same. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, we don't have a copy of the original manuscript that the translators gave to him. Uh, everybody wishes we did. It's thought that the Great Fire in London in 1666, that those documents might have been lost at that time. 
um, but we don't have a copy of what the translators handed over to Robert Barker. Um, we also don't have a record of an official sanction from the king saying this is the authorized version, but it's clear that he approved of it. Uh, and it says in the, the title page, this is the Bible approved or appointed for reading in the churches. So I'll pause here um, for any comments or questions about uh, what we've talked about so far. So we've talked about kind of the history of it, and then that's kind of how they did their work, and then we'll, we'll pivot to uh, look at the preface here for just a few minutes before we close. Yeah. So it's very close. The question is, is it, is it close to any particular Bible? Um, and it's closest to the Bishop's Bible. Again, they're not wildly different from one another, but it's, it's close to the Bishop's Bible. Depending on the team, it would be closer to one Bible or another. So I think it's in the Prophets. Uh, there were a lot of Puritans on that team, and so they would use the Geneva Bible quite a bit. So you can see more connection with the Geneva Bible in those books, uh, depending on who's on the team. But it was, again, as... Uh, was stated in that first rule. It's very close to the Bishop's Bible. So, yeah, Ethan. Yeah, good question. How much conflict or tension was in the translating team? Um, a bit, but not a ton. You know, um, there were there were some translators I read stories about um, that maybe were dragging their feet, uh, part, but for maybe different reasons. Some of them thought they weren't getting paid enough. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, so they, they were the first translators to get paid for doing a translation. Before the King James, that didn't happen. Uh, they'd have to do it on their own time. They weren't getting paid much. but um, And then, yeah, I mean, they would debate. They would make a lot of notes. They would have debates um, about how to phrase things and how to word things. Yeah. But in large measure, I mean, they, it wasn't like a brawl. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Chuck is just asking if they were all Christians. I mean, that, that's I'm, – I'm not in a position to say one way or another, um, so I can't make a definitive statement on that. Um, you know, I think what ultimately matters about any Bible translation is, is, is the translation faithful to the Hebrew and Greek texts that we have? Um, and it's not irrelevant who's doing that work. That, that, you know, it, it has some factor to play, um, but I don't think it's ultimately the defining factor. There are stories that I read – Again, about, um, yeah, about some of the things that the King James translators, some of their personal lives that, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, that's not great. Um, but I'm, yeah, I don't know enough to definitively say one way or another. Yeah, yeah, God's still in charge, yeah. Yes, Jim. Yeah. 
that's probably tr- that's you know I think that those things are um, yeah regularly at play. I mean, and it's interesting that even today, uh, our translations still don't translate uh, some of those concerns that they had today. We still translate church, church, and baptize, baptize, not for the exact same reasons that they did. Um, but those aren't the best words in English for those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are there are certainly translations, and we'll probably talk about them later. Um, that for a variety of reasons, some of them theological, some of them political, might choose to use certain words or phrases um, for their own interests. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? All right. I think I am going In the preface, I'll just say this, and I would encourage you, if you have time, uh, you can Google preface to the King James Version of the Bible and check it out. Um, One thing you'll notice, uh, if you opened the King James uh, Bible of 1611, the first thing you'd see is a dedication to the king, Um, and it's flowery, it's wonderful, it's very sweet. Um, Guys, it might be a good uh, tip for you and just how to honor your wives, even. Um, Speaks very highly of the king. Um, glowing review. And then the next thing you read is the when they start writing the preface, they are very much on the defense. Uh, the whole preface, almost the entire thing, is very much defending the King James from a variety of critics. Um, this wasn't received. The King James wasn't received with pomp and fanfare and cheers. Um, it was criticized by all sorts of people. Puritans on the one side, Anglicans on the other, and Catholics on the other, even though Catholics weren't involved directly with this. Um, So they are very much defending the work. They're defending the work of translation in general. They're defending the work of translating into the common language. They're defending the work of revising a translation. They're defending this particular translation. Uh, So we'll get into that next week um, and look at how they explain themselves uh, in the preface to the King James. So uh, I'll conclude by praying, and uh, then we'll be uh, dismissed for the service. Father, we thank you so much uh, for uh, this work that in your providence you worked through King James, and you worked through these translators. You worked even in the midst of the political situation that could be volatile at times to allow this translation to be completed and then to allow us to have access to it today. And God, we thank you so much for uh, your word. We pray that as we hear it preached and read, that as we sing the truths in it this morning, that you would fill our hearts with joy that we have your word and that we would treasure it. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.